Hello and welcome to Hillcrest to Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Connecting Your World to Jesus. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 12, verse 20 through 26. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it, is, it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Dr. Kim, for reading our scripture today. Now, we're going through a study of the Gospel of John. And uh, in this passage that we're looking at today, we get to this intriguing encounter. Because in this passage that Felicia read to us in John chapter 12, we see spiritual seekers approach one of the apostles and they say, we want to see Jesus. This passage lets us know that those who are connected to Jesus connect others to Jesus. We look for opportunities that God gives. We accept the sacrifice God requires and we look forward to the honor that God bestows on those who connect others to Jesus. Those are the three points of this study today. So let's write this first point down on your sermon notes. Look for the opportunities God gives to connect people to Jesus. Now I want you to know your faith conversations arise naturally with non-believers who share your same background, your same interests, and your same pain. When I speak of your background, I'm talking about the same upbringing that you had, the same educational opportunities that you had. When I talk about interests, I'm talking about people who have the same entertainment choices that you have or the same hobbies that you're engaged in. And when I talk about the same pain, I'm talking about people who share the same life-changing experience that you've had, the same tragedy, the same heartbreak, the same involvement in a recovery program that you've had. Your faith conversations arise naturally among non-believers who share the same background, interests, and pain that you have. Now, I think that's what's happening in verses 20 and 21. Look again. We read, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, the festival that is referred to here would be the Passover festival, that annual celebration where the Israelites thanked God for centuries ago, releasing them from Egyptian slavery. 
and uh, the Greeks that John refers to here in today's passage would not have been converts to Judaism. These would have been people known as God-fearers. God-fearers was a title that was placed upon people in the New Testament times, Gentiles who were attracted to the Hebrew faith without becoming necessarily converts to it. And so they attended a synagogue from time to time. They had conversations about Old Testament faith with their Jewish friends. They even attended Jewish festivals at the temple in Jerusalem, like we see these people doing in John chapter 12. They found something in the teaching and in the rituals of the Old Testament to be attractive to them, and they came close to it. They were God-fearers. So in verse 20, some of these God-fearers attending the Passover festival approach Philip. Now, why do you think they singled out Philip of all the apostles and all the other disciples who could have introduced them to Jesus? We can't be sure, but I think it was because they felt they had something in common with him. After all, the name Philip is not an Old Testament name. It is not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name, isn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that Philip was Greek. He was a Hebrew, but his parents had given him a name that was more familiar to Greek-speaking people. And uh, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, specifies that Philip was of Bethsaida of Galilee. Now, we know from other places in the Bible that this is a region in the former Hebrew territories that was more influenced by Greek and Gentile thought than any of the other former Hebrew uh, territories. And so what this means is that these Greek people, these non-Jewish people, felt they had something in common with Philip more than any of the other apostles. Now, people like that exist today. We don't call them God-fearers today, but like the Greeks of John chapter 12, they're curious about our faith. They're even attracted to certain aspects of the message of our faith, and they attend church from time to time, or they occasionally in, in, engage people in faith conversations, and maybe they come to the special festivals such as Christmas Eve or, uh, or, uh, or Easter. And when they want to talk with somebody about the faith, they are going to go to somebody that they have something in common with. So don't be surprised if they have something in common with you. They're more likely to approach you than anybody else in this church to talk about faith. They see that they got the same degree that you got, if not from the same school, at least the same degree. Or they're in the same field of employment that you are. Or you both have the same interest in fishing. Or you're both in a recovery group. Or you've both gone through the same heartbreaking, life-changing experience. They're more likely to talk about Jesus with you than with anyone else. And so be ready for those opportunities. Now, at this stage, some of you might say, well, you know, Pastor, you're old. And at a time in the past, maybe there were people who were interested in talking about the faith, but you don't know my world today. Christianity is looked upon with a great deal of suspicion and hostility today than maybe it ever has been before in America. That's my world today, Pastor. And I would say, I know that. I'm familiar with this. I live in that world myself. I understand that. But don't you remember where we are when we get to John chapter 12? I told you last week that the Gospel of John is unique in this way. Half of the Gospel of John is about the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And so when we get to John chapter 12 and this encounter with the, with the Greeks in this uh, uh, section in John chapter 12, Jesus is less than a week away from being crucified. 
The religious leadership hated him. They're conspiring together to get him on the cross. And by the end of this week, there are, are, are the, the, the common crowds in Jerusalem that will be calling for his crucifixion. His own closest followers will run away from him. This is just less than a week away from this passage that we have read in John chapter 12. You talk about being a hard environment to be Jesus. You talk about being a hard environment to be followers of Jesus. That was it. And yet, even in the midst of that, there were these Greeks who came forward and said, we'd like to meet Jesus. Can you make the introduction? That's still going to be the case today, no matter how hostile, no matter how difficult that things get for people who are followers of Christ. It, there's still going to be people who are spiritually seeking today. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we read this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So are you prepared? It doesn't seem that Philip was prepared. Did you notice in this passage of Scripture that when these Greeks came to him because they thought that they had something in common with him and they said, could you make the introduction? We want to meet Jesus. Did Philip introduce them to Jesus? Not right away. And we're not told exactly why. There's, we've got to be careful with speculation anytime the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us something. But I think it was because this was something new. And Philip didn't know what to do with this. I mean, you, you think about all the encounters that Jesus had in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. With rare exceptions, in almost every instance, his encounters were with his fellow Jewish people. In fact, at one point he made this explicit. He said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so that was his mission. That was his calling. His, his great focus was on those who were Israelites like he was an Israelite. And now, here at what we now know is toward the close of Jesus' ministry, these non-Jewish people come and they say, we'd like to meet Jesus. And Philip says, nothing like that's ever happened before. What should I do with this? Now, like I said, that's some speculation. We don't know exactly why Philip didn't know what to do with these spiritually seeking people. But I know why sometimes you and I don't know what to do with spiritually seeking people. We don't know if we'll have the answers to the questions they ask about our faith. Or it may be in some instances that they are involved in certain lifestyle choices that make us uncomfortable. Or we just don't know what to do with the misconceptions they have about our faith. And will we respond in a defensive way or will we remain open to them? And so even when opportunities come to introduce, to connect people to Jesus, we don't take advantage of those opportunities because we don't know what to do with them. But if Philip didn't know what to do with this opportunity when it came forward, Andrew certainly did. Do you notice in this passage it says that Philip went to Andrew and said, what do we do about this? And Andrew said, I know what to do about this. Now it's interesting, Andrew is a minor character in the Gospel of John. He's one of the apostles, and yet there are only three instances where he is initiating any sort of action in the Gospel of John. But here's the interesting thing, in all three of those instances, the action he is initiating is introducing people to Jesus. Now, we've already seen this way back a year ago, a little more than a year ago, when we first started in the Gospel of John. We were in John chapter 1 and verse 41 and 42. Here we're told that Andrew was called by Jesus to follow him. And then we read the first 
thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. And then six chapters later in John chapter 6, this is the story of the feeding of the, of the 5,000. And, uh, and everybody was hungry and there was no food. And there was just this one boy with a sack lunch of some loaves and some fish. And it's the gospel of John of all the gospels that tell us, tell us that Andrew was the one that found that boy with that sack lunch and Andrew brought him to Jesus. And then in the third instance of Andrew initiating action, it's here in John chapter 12, when Philip told him some Gentiles wanted to see Jesus, Andrew suggested that he and Philip bring the matter to Jesus. And that's all that history tells us about Andrew. But isn't that enough? I mean, if history recorded and preserved nothing else about your life, wouldn't you want the one thing for people to know 2,000 years about your life was that you were busy bringing people to Jesus. Let me introduce you, let me make sure that you are introducing people to Jesus. Jesus can change lives. Jesus can turn things around. Jesus can fix hurting marriages. Jesus can break harmful addictions. Jesus can give people hope and purpose. Jesus can help overcome somebody's personal shame over the things that they have done. It makes all the difference in the world that we be people who introduce people to Jesus. Let's be remembered for the one thing that Andrew is remembered for. If no one can recall anything else about what we've done 15 years after we've left this earth, let it be this one thing that they recall. At least let us be remembered as somebody who is always introducing other somebodies to Jesus. Last Sunday, our missions committee had a Zoom meeting with um, the church planter that you support with your tithes and offerings to this church. A portion of our missions budget goes to support a church plant in Seattle. Some of you have met the church planter. His name is Daniel Engelhart. You've met him either uh, preaching in this pulpit or, or uh, on a retreat that some of our folks in Second Half Ministries had in Colorado. Uh, and we're looking for an opportunity to bring him back so that he can preach and so you can get caught up in some of the ministry that's going on there in, in Seattle. One of the things that he told us was that um, these last nearly three years now of COVID restrictions have been really difficult on his church. His church was growing over the several years that it has been in existence. And then during this long stretch of time when it was so difficult for people to get together, he, he's lost two-thirds of the average attendance of his church. Most of them have moved out of the area to places that are more affordable now that so many people can work from home. And it's almost like he's replanting. It's almost like he's starting all over again. And we asked him, what could we pray for? And he said, pray for evangelists. Now, he didn't mean pray for Billy Grahams. He didn't say pray for crusade evangelists. What he meant was this, pray that among those who are still attending, that God would raise up people who are open about their faith. Pray that God would send to us people who will start attending here who are open about their faith. And so we said we would pray for him about that, and we said that we would pray for our own church about that, that God would raise up evangelists, that God would raise up people who are currently attending here who will be open about their faith, that God will send us people who are open about their faith, who are comfortable about the questions that non-believers ask, who are creating an environment that is welcoming for people who are asking questions about the faith. 
And that's what we need uh, to do. We need to look for the opportunities that God gives us to connect people to Jesus. But if we're going to take advantage of those opportunities, if and when they come, we need to be ready for the sacrifices required. And so that's the second thing I want you to write down. Accept the sacrifice God requires to connect people to Jesus. Look for the opportunities God gives to connect people to Jesus, but then accept the, the sacrifices God requires to connect people to Jesus. So when Andrew and Philip reported their encounter with the Gentiles to Jesus, the very first thing that Jesus thought about was the sacrifice that would be required of him for those people to be put in a right relationship with God. And right on the heels of that, he talked about not his sacrifice, but your sacrifice required to do that very thing. So he starts off thinking about his sacrifice. Look again at verses 23 and 24. He says, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, in our study through the Gospel of John, three times we've heard Jesus say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And now in this passage, for the first time, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He was thinking about the cross that would take place in just a few days away. But it's interesting that he would refer to his death on a cross as his moment to be glorified. I mean, crucifixion was the Roman government's electric chair. It was the Roman government's noose. It was their firing squad. It was a torturous and humiliating way to die. And yet Jesus said, the moment of my glorification has come. Why did he speak of it like that? Well, the Bible tells us in various places that God gets all the glory for our salvation. So, for example, we find in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement so as to be, notice this, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see the dual thing that the the cross accomplished? It allowed God to be both just and the justifier for those of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God, the perfect judge, must be just. Sin must be punished. But God also wants to be the justifier. He wants to be the one who makes right those who come to Jesus Christ. And, and, and so the cross is the place where that happens, where sin is paid for by somebody else other than us. And so our salvation is not based on what we do for God. It's based on what God has done for us. He gets all the glory in our salvation. And that's why Jesus said the moment of his glorification was upcoming. It was at hand because when he died, God would get all the glory for our salvation. Now, in today's passage, Jesus compared himself to seed that had a choice, which is an interesting analogy because seed in the natural world doesn't have a choice. A farmer gathers up a handful and scatters it out on his garden plot It doesn't have a choice of whether it's going to fall or not, but Jesus spoke of himself as a seed that had a choice. He could preserve himself. He could live for himself. 
He could avoid the humiliation of dirt and the loss of burial, but if he did that, he would remain simply an individual single seed. Or he could lose himself, he could subtract himself, he could die to self, and he could, it could result in a great abundance of life for other people. But now here's the interesting thing. What does seed produce? It produces seed. And so now you and I, as seed, have the same choice that Jesus had. We can preserve ourselves. We can live for ourselves. We can avoid the humiliation of dirt and the loss of burial. Or we can give ourselves. We can subtract ourselves. We can lose ourselves. We can die to self. And it can result in a great abundance of life for other people. And that's why Jesus went on to say, after talking about his own sacrifice, he starts talking about your sacrifice. In verses 25 and 26, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and wherever I am, my servant also will be. Now, that phrase, anyone who wants to hold on to his life is going to end up losing it. Anyone who gives up his life for my sake is going to find that he gets to keep it and gain it abundantly. That shows up six times in the four Gospels, two times in Matthew, two times in Luke, one time in Mark, and one time here in John. But it's here in this context that it takes on a special meaning. Because what Jesus is talking about when he talks about losing your life here in this context is is sacrificing yourself, inconveniencing yourself, giving up yourself so that others might live, just as Jesus did. And that's why he goes on to say after that famous statement, whoever serves me must follow me, and wherever I am, my servant will also be. Wherever I am, my servant will also be. All right? So it's kind of good to know where Jesus is so we as his servants can be there as well. So where is Jesus? Well, my guess is he's in the same place he was when he walked this earth. Where was he when he walked this earth? He was with people who needed him. They could have been wealthy like Zacchaeus, or poor and desperate like the Gadarene demoniac, or ostracized like the Samaritan woman at the well, or influential and respected like Nicodemus, but they are all in need of him. That's where he was when he walked this earth. And he says in this passage that those who are his servants just want to be where he is. In fact, it's, it's interesting. We, uh, from, some, uh, from time to time, we sometimes sing a, a Don Moen song with the line, I just want to be where you are, dwelling daily in your presence. Take me to the place where you are. I just want to be with you. And when we sing that song or a song like that, what do, what do you think of? I think for a lot of people, we think of some mountain retreat, some place away from people, away from the demands and the requirements that people make upon our life. And, and you know, I do hope that you have moments like that. I've had moments like that of prayer retreats where it was just me getting alone, spending time. God met me there. But the reality is if we just want to be where he is, dwelling daily in his presence, where is he? He's among people who need him today, just like he was among people who needed him when he walked this earth. But 
If you're going to be where he is, dwelling daily in his presence with people who need him, that is going to require sacrifice. That is going to require sacrifice of your time, your energy, your money, your patience, your creativity, all poured out, not for your own sake and for your own goals, but for the sake of bringing life to other people. And let me extend this application out a little bit further. If you're going to obey this passage of Scripture, it's going to require sacrifice for you to be involved in a church that is committed to connecting people with Jesus. There are just way too many people today who want to find a big church with a big children's ministry and a big youth group, and they're not doing that so they can roll up their sleeves and get involved there. They're doing that so they can get lost in the crowd. They're doing that so that somebody else can serve them and they can take a stretch, take a break for a while. If you're going to be involved in a church that is trying to connect people to Jesus, it is going to require your leadership, your volunteering, your signing up for activities, the sacrifice of your time and your energy and your money to be involved in a church like that. But this passage tells us that if we are going to say we are servants of Jesus, then we need to be where Jesus is. We need to be doing the activities that Jesus is doing. I remember one time when my boys were little, they're in their early 30s now, but when they were little, I had some moment of inspiration to guess to teach them a little about nature, and so we saved some seeds. I think it was from a cantaloupe or something like that. We were going to plant them so they could see life spring up, but I got busy as I tend to do, and I don't know much about seeds, and I put these things on a windowsill to dry out, and boy, did they dry out, and they withered, and they shriveled up, and Insects came along and drilled holes into them, and ants came along, and, you know, eventually I just had to throw those things out. But then I did get some seeds, and I did what I intended to do. I got outside, and my boys and I, we planted those seeds, and life sprang up from that burial. Now, of those two images, which one is a better picture of your life? Are you withering away on some windowsill? Or are you expending yourself, pouring yourself out, sacrificing yourself, letting yourself be buried for the chance of giving life to other people. But now we can't wrap up this study today without drawing out one more truth. So I want you to write this down. Look forward to the honor God bestows on those who connect others to Jesus. Look for the opportunities, be ready for the sacrifices, but also look forward to the honor that God bestows on those who connect other people to Jesus. In our passage, Jesus said, you know, don't selfishly cling to your life, but expend it, pour it out like I'm doing for the sake of bringing life to other people. Wherever the, the, the master is, that's where the servant will be. So wherever I am, that's where you will be. And then he concludes all of this in verse 26 by saying this, my father will honor the one who serves me. Now, for a lot of us, it's just honor enough just to be where Jesus is, right? For the Lord of the universe to invite us to come along and be his companions, that's honor enough. And yet Jesus gives us an overabundance of honor, not just by letting us be where he is, but then he says, my father will honor you for this. It reminds me of what we read in the last chapter of the book of Daniel. As Daniel is closing, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, we read, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Now, we know how good it feels to be recognized for our academic achievement. I won't ask for a show of hands necessarily about whether you got 
summa cum laude or magna cum laude or cum laude or just praise the laude. I don't know, but, <laughs> but if you got any one of those recognitions for your academic achievement, it felt good, didn't it? And it feels good to have a trophy on the mantle at your, your house or your parents' house for some athletic achievement that you accomplished. And it feels good on the last day of work, on retirement, to have all these people honor you and focus on all the things you accomplished at that time of service in that company or that place. All of that feels good. But imagine what it would be like for God himself at the end of time to call you in front of all the universe and play a video segment of how you influence somebody else to the point that they got connected to Jesus. People connected to Jesus connect people to Jesus. That's what we learn in this passage. Now let me mention one way to do that. Three weeks from today, on February the 13th, I begin a new semester of the Anchor Course. Like a ship's anchor, the Anchor Course is a book study that I put together almost 20 years ago now as an introduction to people who are asking questions about Christianity. Uh, questions like, who is God? And who is Jesus? And why do you Christians say that Jesus had to die on a cross for the cleansing of my sins? And, and why do you believe that a dead man rose from the dead? And, and what is forgiveness like? And what is heaven like? And all these types of questions. And that's what I deal with in this book. And I, I've taught it twice a year for a long, long time in the fall and then in the winter, spring. And usually I teach it on Wednesdays, but on February 13th, I'm going to do an eight-week run on Sundays. We've got children's programming going on at the same time and youth programming going on at the same time. So somebody who has children or, or youth, there's something for their kids to be involved in while they're involved in, in this course. And it'll take place right after the worship service is up for an hour in the gym with me. And I know that you know people who need to be connected to Jesus. You date somebody like that. You're married to somebody like that. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus or they know Jesus, but they haven't been connected to a church in a long, long time. Or you are somebody who has an adult son or daughter who lives in this area, who was raised in church, but it's been 20 years or so, and they haven't been involved in a church, and now they're starting to ask questions again of the faith that they were raised in. Or maybe you have a friend and a recovery group that you're a part of who wants to improve their conscious contact with God. You know somebody like that. Invite them to come and sit with you for this anchor course. Don't, don't invite them to an eight-week course. Most people who don't know anything about me or this course, they're not going to sign up for a big commitment like that. Just ask them to come that one week, February 13th. And I'll introduce what the anchor course is all about. And those who want to go through it, they'll get a book for free and they can partic participate with me for the next eight weeks, maybe with you too, if you want to sit with them for that course. Now, if it's not the anchor course that you would want to use to connect other people to Jesus, that's fine. But find something that will help you connect other people to Jesus because people connected to Jesus connect people to Jesus. They look for the opportunities to do so. They bear the sacrifices required to do so. And they look forward to the honor that God is going to bestow on them for doing so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, first of all, we want to thank you for the people who connected us to Jesus. Our parents, or a Sunday school teacher when we were children, or a youth camp counselor when we were in high school, or a friend, or a marriage partner. We thank you 
for that one or for those several who connected us to Jesus. And now we commit to be that point of connection for others to meet you. Forgive us for all the times we let opportunities like that pass us by. But open our eyes to those chances as they come by in the future. We'll bear the sacrifice required. We'll look forward to the honor you promised to bestow on those who connect people to Jesus. And I pray for those right now who know that they need to make their own connection to Jesus. They're like the Greeks in this story who say, would somebody help me see Jesus? I pray that they will place their trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord at this moment and that they would be saved. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled, Drawn by Love. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest to Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.